Hi, I'm Victor Agretta Jr. And this week on Coders, we're gonna be talking about outsourcing your code. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. TelecomCareers.com. Comscope, thinking beyond today's technology to help you make the best decision for your network and your business. I had a little more definition here. I would have a halo. Yes, look at that. Beautiful. Happy. That's still making somebody happy. Beautiful green halo. Perfect. Me, I'll fade so in. You get a little light. rim shot. Exactly. Rim light. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, that was a pretty good test. So we're gonna go ahead and start the show, okay? Okay. Start the stream. But before you start streaming, make sure you're streaming the right thing, because this is oh, live. Yeah. That's live. No, no retakes. Right. Hi everybody, this is Victor Greta Jr. And this week on Coders, we're gonna be talking about outsourcing your code, both from a contractor's perspective and from someone who's done the contracting. So join us right after this. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. TelecomCareers.com. Comscope, thinking beyond today's technology to help you make the best decision for your network and your business. Hi, everybody. It's Victor Greta Jr. And I am here this week with Doug McCon. 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 I got that right, finally. You know, you got one of those weird last names like I do. Uh, Doug is actually a developer here in town, and he's worked on a bunch of different types of projects, actually. And he's done some outsourcing, insourcing all sorts of sourcing, but you're also a developer yourself. I'm a, I'm a, I still do freelance development. I uh, have had a very esoteric career, so I have been on both sides of the uh, of the consulting thing. Uh, cool. Where I've actually hired out to folks and been the guy I hired. Okay. So let's start with, first of all, uh, as a contractor yourself, uh, what are some of the things that you try to present to people when, you know, when they're out looking? I mean, this is a, a common problem, right? You say, well, we want to build something. Yes. And we're out there, we're looking for people. What are some of the things that as a developer, you try to explain to people who are hiring you? Well, that's a, that's a tough question because um, it, it's establishing that relationship that's so important uh, initially. And I was in a fortunate position of having many uh, intermediates who would actually 
work with the customer and then say, we've already got this relationship established with the developer. But a lot of developers nowadays have to have a portfolio that they can go to the potential customer with and say, this is, um, they have to prove themselves first. Mm -hmm. So we find uh, people asking for GitHub accounts and, and just that, that body of evidence, which uh, is difficult when you're working with a lot of proprietary software. Sure. So when you have agreements with your clients to not reveal what the uh, what you're working on, it's hard to go to your next client and say, this is what I've done. So you end up having to have this dialogue about what your skill set is as far as communication. You cannot outsource. You cannot be the outsourcer. If you do not have really quality communication, you um, uh, have to explain to them the entire process. And frequently, I find that the uh, person you're working with, if they have never been through uh, using an outsourcer before, they just don't uh, they don't have, they don't know what needs to be communicated. So, mm -hmm. so you need to establish that upfront. Yeah, because it's a little bit different. I mean, if you're to, traditionally, if you're hiring someone full time, you're taking on this risk that they are able to, you know, move about and say, you know, like, oh, oh we're doing PHP. Oh, no, no, wait, now we're doing Python. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing that. Right. Exactly. Whereas with a contractor, you can say, look, we specifically want you because you're great with Python or you're right. great with this. So, it becomes a, an issue of proving or at least showing at least as a sort of a personal marketing objective to say, Hey, look, I'm actually really good at X, Y, or Z right. because that's what you guys have a specific need for. And, and it's a, it's really a huge risk for the person doing the hiring because uh, I, I've been in a situation many times where they say we've been through three consultants, all of them promised they could do some do X and none of them delivered. And the question that would be phrased to me is, why do you think you can deliver this? Yeah, and um, and it's challenging too. Be a lot of it's managing expectations. People feel like uh, in the software development world, they build this thing and then package it, and it's done. But a lot of times, it's a living, a living thing. And when you hire a consultant in to work on this living, evolving website or application, and then the consultant goes away, the next person who comes in feels like they need to start over. Right. And that's very frustrating to the person hiring these consultants on. Well, and that, that's interesting too, because uh, the world has changed a little bit in that we are at that point. I, I just remember with WWDC, they put up a slide that said 98% of Fortune 500 companies now have an app on the app store. Okay. And then they were talking about iOS, but most of those also have Android apps or whatever. So the interesting thing is now we're not, we're past that gold rush. We're past that sort of like, oh, I need an app. I need an app. So these guys have all shipped apps. Now we're in sort of the maintenance phase, right? And right. you can't discount that. I mean, if you're someone like a Fidelity or JP Morgan or who, whoever's still in business these days, uh, and, and you have an app that looks like it's from iOS 5, you know, that's still using the shiny buttons and these kinds of things like it, that looks amateur. So yeah. we're at a point where you have to come in to establish projects mm -hmm. and work on those, right? It, it hurts your credibility. If your app has not evolved with the industry, uh, you look like a business that I don't want to work with because you haven't stayed up with the times. Right. And uh, it's interesting because um, when you hire a consultant, you think you're going to save money. And, and a lot of times you, you're just cutting corners for the next consultant to come yeah. in. So if, if, you've, if you've gotten on a project, for instance, I, I actually outsourced one through Russia once. So I had a client come to me and they say, we, we wanna do this. They actually had, a, this was way back when you could uh, 
customized Internet Explorer with the company logo. And, oh, yeah. And so what their business was was a search engine for fat-fingered uh, URLs. So if you mistyped a URL, they wanted to end up uh, you to end up at their search engine. And uh, we needed to write some basically malware for that. So we were going to put in a, a toolbar. They came to me and I said, I can't do it for the budget that you, you've offered. But here's an option. We can go through Pakistan, Russia, India, something. They chose a company uh, in Russia, and I was the project manager on it. So for the price they offered, we set a contract. We, we defined expectations up front. We said there will be no documentation in English. They're, they're not hiring 24-7 support. All, it was all clearly written down, and that's the key. You've got to have a good contract. So in the end, we did a small test of their product, in the lab with a small number of computers, it worked great. But when we released it to millions of computers, uh, millions of users, their entire company went down. Oh, wow. Russia was asleep. And then they hired in a, uh, another full-time programmer for their own staff who came in and said, where's all the English documentation? Where's all the English comments? And so we had to rewrite a contract and say, this is what it's going to cost. And after they got the cost, they decided they would learn Russian. So, <laughs> well, you know, that, that is a problem, right? So uh, expectations obviously have to be managed up front, but then there is the idea of feature creep. Yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, have you ever been in a situation where feature creep didn't impact the project? Not once. Right. It, it, it's the most difficult thing to manage and frustrating as the consultant, because as a consultant, you want to be that yes man. You want to say, uh, if, if, you ask for it, I will give it to you. Right. If you need a second story on your house, I can build yeah. that for you. Yeah. It's just going to cost time and money. And um, I've known, I've had friends who are in the same business who are very terse with their customers and very, uh, if the customer asks for feature X, they're very quick to say, no, you can't do that. And they don't stay in the industry long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing that there's, always been this uh, prevailing notion that the customer is always right. And I think that maybe in retail, okay, maybe, right? Because they've got a scarf and that maybe it was mismarked and okay, yeah, we'll give them the discount. That's, that's good customer relations. But if you're dealing one-to-one, -one, this is a business to business relationship, right? Yes. The customer is largely ignorant of what you need to do Correct. because that's why they're hiring you. So in some ways the customer is rarely right except that they may have business considerations that they're aware of that you might not be aware of. So you're also aware as a contractor that you can instantly be replaced, sort of, right? It's yes. not just an easy thing. Of, oh, okay, you're fired. And I'm going to hire this other guy who has a resume from MIT or whatever, but has no social skills, no project management skills, no time management skills. Right. And it's an utter disaster, right? Uh, so I understand what you're saying about the, uh, you know, the aspect of people ask, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And you have to say, well, let's consider how that impacts X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, now, here's an interesting thing, though. Can you give us any kind of examples from your experience of, well, we had a feature that kind of came in either late stage or mid stage, and it actually, we ended up implementing it, and that changed things for the better, or that, that actually was something that was a good thing that they brought up in the middle of the project? Um, that's a tough one. I, I, I'm certain I've been in that situation. Yeah. yeah I think it happens all the time. Yeah. And, and it, that's the thing about project management is uh, no matter what technique you use, waterfall, agile, um, sticky notes on the wall, toward the end, 
I used to say you can't test quality into a product mm -hmm. and, and what we would uh, frequently the way I want to say immature, but most software companies do this. They'll start designing things. They'll get in this uh, race to get all the code done. And at the end, they'll test it. Yeah. And it's during that testing when your client suddenly finally takes it seriously enough to look at it. And then that's when they realize we can't use it this way. Yeah. And, and, um, I have had uh, cases like that. Well, this one I can't really talk about. Um, okay, I've got, uh, uh, in general for, uh, terms, we've had a customer before that had a form, basically. And the developer, the contractor, came in and designed the form the way the programmer would want to see it. And when it finally got down to testing, got ready to release the product, the customer said, we can't use this at all. This is not how our model works. And what you were saying earlier, the developer, the contractor has to get in and understand the business almost better than the people running the business yeah. themselves, which is where you kind of become a business consultant and talk about their business rules. Where if a bank president was hiring me to automate a piece of the business, the bank president would say, I want you to do this thing. Well, from his perspective or her perspective, they understand that if they say something it happens in the bank right they don't understand all the different levels they don't understand the step-by-step uh, -step procedures that the teller the implementation is not important it's the goal that they were setting yeah and, and and the contractor to program that to automate that has to understand every step of the way so it's very important that you get in get good requirements really understand the business or um, in the end you end up just extending the program uh, the the contract another couple of years yeah and yeah it never ends. and it never ends although which you know is good from a bank account statement but bad for your mental health right and it's it's not really good for the relationship either yeah i frequently said that um in uh, in this business in the freelance business the consulting industry uh customers and consultants have expiration dates mm -hmm. there gets to be a point where the customer feels like they have paid out so much to you that you owe them even though they're continuing to ask for new features. Yeah. I, I had a client once that we built an online store for them and we spent, it went, it feature creeped. It, it, it was poorly managed by me and it just went on forever. And I thought we had a good relationship and we got to a point where he said, I want this new feature. And I quoted him, let's say $2,000, some, some, some number. And um, he balked. And he absolutely refused. He said, I've given you enough money. You're just going to put this in. And I said, I can't work with you anymore. We ended the relationship. I referred him to a friend who charged him four times as much as what I did. And he was happy to pay him. So, so I believe that there comes a point where um, if you've, particularly if you haven't managed the relationship well, that you almost have to part ways and, and just get another developer. Yeah, sometimes it seems like there's a, a toxicity that develops, and it's it's almost like uh, like an Iron Man two, where he's got the the arc reactor, but it's slowly poisoning him. Yep. You know, and it's like it was a great thing at the time, but the longer that this goes on, the more problems you're going to have. Uh, and especially, like you said, when when things aren't set up up front in a way that you say, okay, no, wait, remember what we said back here, and you can point to something and it's a line item on a contract and saying like, no, look, here are the deliverables, right? Uh, speaking of deliverables, now, uh, deliverables, uh, I know that, you know, you've done a little bit of everything. You've done Waterfall, you've done Agile and whatnot. Can, can you just talk about sort of what are your preferences? I mean, is it a hybrid approach? Well, that's, it's interesting. Uh, um, I talk uh, to friends a lot about uh, 
where are all the old programmers? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, they all move into project management or something, but um, you get the young Turks coming out of college with all the buzzwords and, yes. but lacking the experience. So, yeah. but I feel like as we get older in, our, in, in the programming, we start to get stuck in our ways. Yeah. I'm fighting that a little bit with agile right now, to be honest. So uh, we do some, some of the clients I work with, we do, I feel like we do the buzzwords for agile, mm -hmm. but we're not actually doing it. And I find that frustrating. Yeah. And, and because, um, so ultimately it's whatever gets the job done. Yeah. And I don't think that there's any one method that's best for, you know, that's prescriptive, that's going to get the job done. I think you have to look at the situation, the client, their budget, how they like to work. Sure. And if they're, used to Gantt charts and, and old waterfall style timelines, you're going to have to give that to them. Yeah. You need to deliver to them. But if, if you've got a Kanban board stuck on your wall where you've got a bunch of sticky notes and that's what makes it work for you, you still have to meet their expectations. Yeah. So, so for me, I kind of munge them all together. That's good. No, I, I think that that's great. And actually I've been listening to the, the book about Scrum by one of the co-creators of Scrum, and it's it's pretty interesting. And of course, I just finished watching the two seasons of Silicon Valley, and I thought it was funny. There was actually an episode called "Minimum Viable Product," oh, excellent. right? Excellent. And and that whole idea of creating this. But you know, the thing is, is that if you're uh, a good example, would be a financial institution like Fidelity or someone like that. And I, I know some people who have written applications for these banks. Minimum viable product starts out with security. Yes. You know, so it's it's not like, oh, can I go and check my account? It's, oh, are we going to be implementing HTTPS on every single interaction that happens in this app? Right. You can't go further than that. So it, yeah, there is definitely, but, I think, a call for the waterfall and for agile and a hybrid approach. But that's not satisfying to the customer either. Of course. It, it's, um, I mean, it's what we have to do. And that's where the frustration between a non-technical customer and the consultant frequently uh, comes into play. It's like uh, when I was remodeling my downstairs, I ripped out all the walls. I, I sealed the wall. I painted the walls. I studded the walls. I ran wires through the walls. I, I put insulation up and moisture barriers. And then I, then I put up the drywall and I t uh, spackled the drywall. I taped it. When I finally painted it, my wife looked at it and said, that's what I wanted. Why didn't you do that in the first place? And that's, I feel like that's what the consulting world is frequently like for a, a freelance developer is you're going in and meeting these customers. They know what the final product they want is. Yeah. They know they want that painted wall. They don't understand what all goes into it. And if you don't communicate that to them along the way, if you don't say, we have to establish the security as our minimal viable product, we have to make this business rule that everything we're going to do is HTTPS and you don't explain the reason for that. You just go out and spend a lot of time making it happen. Yeah. They feel like you're wasting their money. Right. And, uh, and to that end, one thing that I've seen multiple times is uh, you do wireframes and you go in and they start to finally conceptualize or even worse, you don't do wireframes, but you actually have a mock-up, right? right. A, a real mock-up and you go in there and they start dreaming up all sorts of things. So what, what are some, what's some advice that you could give people to sort of manage those expectations? Well, uh, the best thing to do is still milestones and making um, frequently tying deliverables to payments to milestones 
makes the customer realize, oh, this is this is real. This is a living thing that I have to get out there. I had a customer once that wanted to do, he was into uh, financial advice. So he would give stock market advice and all this great stuff. And he wanted a website that his customers could go through where he basically published an online magazine that only is a subscription only. So a subscription-based online magazine. And he built this thing and we kept building it and we kept throwing features at it and it was ready to go, but it wasn't perfect in his eye. So I kept encouraging him to launch it and he kept building it. And in the end, it never launched because he ran out of money. He had a product, but by the time he was ready to let that bird fly free, he didn't have the money to keep his hosting going. He just, he was broke. Yeah. So, so you have to establish those milestones and agree on the deliverables and say, at this point, when the product is this far along, we're going to get it out there, let your customers use it, and we're going to continue evolving. And I don't think many customers see apps and websites as living documents. Yeah. And they really are. They're all living entities. It's like your house. If you don't maintain your house, it's going to fall apart. And there's no website, there's no application out there that I can think of that you can just release and never touch again and not be in that same circumstance. Right, yeah, yeah. It's and, and that's a big key is that these are not durable goods. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not like a diamond necklace. And even that, you have to clean jewelry. I mean, you know, nothing is permanent. Um, and more importantly, of course, with technology, the technology changes. It's like we were talking about. If your app doesn't even look, I mean, your app could be the fundamentals, the frameworks could be, absolutely cutting edge but if it looks like an old app people are going to judge it accordingly and certainly in consumer space anyway people are going to have problems with that Uh, so in dealing with as a project manager in dealing with other contractors what are some what are some things i'm particularly curious about the russian aspect and dealing with people in, in other time zones because i mean a lot of outsourcing is actually done around the world um, and so how do you deal with that time sh- that time shift? That, that, was, uh, that was very interesting. Um, at, at my peak, uh, when I was doing my freelancing business, I had a customer in London, I had a customer in the Netherlands, a customer in Australia, and then I had a customer in Dallas whose customer was actually in Korea. And I tried to satisfy them all. I said, I am available to you when you need me. And I ended up staying up 24-7. And it was incredible. It it wasn't good for them. Yeah, I I was being very responsive in my communication, but uh, it was getting kind of uh, the language gets getting weird because I was deliriously tired all the time. So I finally put my foot down and I said, I'm on the East Coast in the United States. I work eight to five. If I happen to answer an email at 4 a.m. or 10 p.m., that's a bonus for you. Right. But (laughs) recognize that these are my hours. That's what Russia did to me on the Russian project. When we established the relationship with Russia, they said, we're going to work these hours. Mm -hmm. Well, when everything went south, after that one release went out the door and millions of customers got their updates and the servers went down, we had nobody to contact because all my communication with Russia had been through email to the one person who spoke English who would actually tell everybody else what to do. Oh, geez. So when this catastrophe happened, I was looking to my friends who spoke Russian and I was about to get them on a conference call and let them translate for me. Wow. It was, uh, it was very interesting. So, so how do you deal with the time zones? Um, you, you have to work through that in, in whatever contract you agree on. If I'm going to hire a consultant in San Francisco and I'm going to hire one in India, we have to agree in the beginning how 
our communication plan is going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, is there going to be a common time once a week where we do get together and get on a uh, video chat and talk about the project? Do we even need that? I had many customers that I used to say, if you lined them up on a police lineup and said, which one's your customer? I would not have been able to identify them right? because as a consultant, I would get an email and it said, this is the job description. Can you get it done? That may be the extent of our conversation. Sure. Well, uh, so let's talk about tools. Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, of course, we use Zoom. Um, there's Skype is pretty popular. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite tools uh, for, for managing projects and for communications? You actually just named the two biggest ones, Zoom and Skype. Um, were absolutely my favorite. All of my business with uh, the person I worked with in London was done through Skype. Uh, we would have a Skype call, uh, everything would follow up in email, but I also, I'm still a huge Redmine user. Okay. So I don't know if that's fallen out of favor with other developers, but because I've been using it for so long, I've got this one Redmine application that basically has all my client information and they know they can log into it. It's basically a portal from them to me. They can enter issues and you have to have some kind of issue tracking system. And I know there's dozens of these things out there now uh, from version one to, um, uh, well, we, we could list them forever. But, you know, but so tools that I use, I like to use the uh, Skype for communication. I like to use tools like Zoom. Team viewers fallen out of favor with me, although I used to use that a lot. They're uh, screen sharing applications. Again, Zoom is a screen sharing application, but join me uh, for taking over control of someone's screen and helping walk them through the product. Yep. If you're working remotely, you can't sit behind your customer and say you're using the product wrong. Right. And, and you probably shouldn't say that anyway. But, <laughs> but we, we did this one thing. I worked for the learning company at one point mm -hmm. and we had... Um, we had this beautiful test room where we would take the uh, child into the computer uh, in the room and the child would sit down with the computer. Behind them was a two-way mirror. And we would shove the entire development team in there and they would watch the child uh, use the game. Yeah, yep. And it was very interesting because this child would go in and he'd grab, it, I forget what the game was, it was kind of like a submarine or something and you were supposed to navigate the ship through the body or something. And uh, but the chi every child test subject would push the mouse the wrong way. All the developers are like, no, 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 don't go to the right. We should be going to the left. But it was just the way they used it. Yeah. So to get that insight in on your customers um, when they're remote, really the only way to do it is with these screen sharing applications. So, and, and it takes communication uh, to another level. Yeah, it really does. Now, have you used uh, Slack at all? Slack, uh, I have looked at, but okay. no, I have not well, I can I can definitely vouch for it. I think it's one I you know very picky. I, when I ran the unofficial Apple weblog, of course, we dealt with a completely distributed team. This was my office, uh, and we used Campfire, Campfire for a long time, right? Campfire is a very popular one, uh, or at least it was. Base camp. Kind of, yeah, Basecamp, you know, yeah. all of that stuff. Uh, and then we actually ended up using IRC. Oh, and really? the reason that we used IRC was because you can create bots. First of all, it's it's free, it's open, mm -hmm. you know, you can install it on your own servers, making it completely secure and private to your specifications, but you can also do scripts. Mm -hmm. So you can have little bots that run and check things. And, um, you know, it's sort of like Git where you can check code in and out and that sort of thing. You can have stuff that checks on these things. Right. And so when a, a blogger would put a post into a sort of middle state, a pending state, not a published or draft, 
it would alert one of our editors right. and it would do a preliminary check and say, okay, the grammar you know, issues or tagging categories, whatever, which is great. And you did this through IRC. All through IRC. Oh. Yeah, we had a really brilliant developer who, who made all these bots and we named them after Mystery Science Theater characters. Love and it. Uh, it was a super fun thing, but it was incredibly useful. Now, what I've seen with Slack is uh, a little bit less extensibility, but they have built in a ton of features that people need. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly what I've found is that communication loop. And, and we'll talk about that for a second because I'm a communications guy. Yes. And it's very important that, as you said, you know, you've got expectations, right? But on a day-to-day -day basis, you've got the sort of micro expectations. Well, you know, something has to get done. So whatever it is, I mean, even if you're Eastern philosophy mindset and say, Every day we're just working on the process and, you know, we're steering ourselves towards a goal, but that's not the fixation. Still, the idea is that something has to be done every day. Well, the beautiful thing about Slack is that it's pretty much impossible to ignore a notification. If you never log back into Slack, you have to use your email to set it up. Right. So you get an email. If right. so you get a direct message or if you get, you know, somebody calls your name and the thing, you'll get an email. So one way or the other, mm -hmm. you're going to get notified. And this one's very agile based, right? It is very agile based. And the cool thing is too, it's sort of like uh, with Campfire, this was the one thing about IRC that was a detriment was that there's no history mm -hmm. that's saved on the client. I mean, it's saved on the client computer, but you have to go through a lot of machinations to do it on the server side, which we didn't do because it's a data storage issue. I mean, you right. can imagine about 12, 15 huge. hours a day. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, I routinely had to archive uh, uh, these things, but with Slack, it's got persistence and it's really clever because when you go in, it says you have this many, you know, 150 messages. You can just click a thing and if it didn't have anything to do with you, you just say done and then you just pop back into the flow. But you which can is, always scroll back. Which is great because if you bring in a new consultant, that's one of the problems with the consultants is um, is there's not, you don't have that long-standing history right. with the company. It's uh, McDonald's once toyed with outsourcing their drive throughs which was fantastic. They did this with an experimental McDonald's up in Boston, I think it was, and the call center was in Minnesota, something oh, wow. like that. So what the premise was, was that with a local McDonald's, and, and I can, I'll relate this back to software, but with a local McDonald's, the turnover's too high, you don't, you don't have a consistent clarity in, the, in the, the language being used in the drive-through, whereas if you have a call center, you can train those people, you're gonna have a more consistent staff, you're going to train them to speak more clearly. They're going to know how to deal with it. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to someone in that McDonald's or talking to someone all the right, way around the world. Right. You get that. And I said I'd relate it back to software. What was that? Um, there was a point. <laughs> well, I can see. I mean, with the communications loop. Oh, right? yes. Yeah. yeah. With the new developers. That's what the point is. Uh, as you bring in a new consultant, I've seen very few projects where the first thing a consultant doesn't say, or even a new employee, so we should throw all this out and I can start over and I can do it faster if I right. start over, which is a mistake. It's a misnomer. Yeah. Uh, the, the product that has gotten to the point where it's gotten to through these series of conversations and, and logic that was put in place that the, that new developer may not understand. Being able to use Slack or something to go back and see that history helps bridge that gap, brings that new employee closer to being having the mindset, that group mind of a long-term. Right, staff. right. And that is absolutely key. That's something that, by the way, we learned is sort of a secret weapon. It's not really a secret weapon if you talk to people who are Apple developers or have been for a long time. But one of the interesting things that I found out when we did Slices of Apple was, uh, 
you know, I don't know if you're familiar with radars. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you follow radars. If you're an Apple developer, you already know about this, but you follow radar when you find a bug. And those radars go into a system that is then reviewed by somebody. And when they solve the problem, they put their thought process, their problem solving process in that radar. That's brilliant. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that this is so valuable to Apple that they actually, in the olden days, they had pieces of paper. And people would say, okay, here's the bug or the issue. Here's who it's assigned to. And then if it went to five other people, they would sign off on it. These physical stacks of paper, you're talking about building the Macintosh, you're talking right. about building, you know, all these products before digitization, they went through a whole process where they actually took those things, digitized them mm -hmm. and put them into the system. So if you think about this for a minute, you actually have years, decades of problem solving experience right. that have been encoded and are searchable. So when someone's trying to figure out a problem or a solution to something, they can actually go back and say, well, wait a minute now, you know, Swift goes all the way back. The roots of Swift actually go back to Next. Okay. And they can go back and they say, well, you know, how did we think about this? Because as you know, a lot of this process is going down blind alleys is saying, you know, here's, and especially the more you innovate, the more blind alleys you're going to wind up with, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it's, if it's something like, okay, well, we want to do something that's like these 50 other things but only a, a touch different, a degree or two different, and our value add is service or whatever, that's one thing, right? That's a very definable sort of thing. And that's where even waterfall like works beautifully. You can say, here's our endpoint and step A, step B, step C. If you're innovating, like they did with the Macintosh, where it was a completely new thing, you're going to go, uh, let's try this. And then that doesn't work. But there's something that you learn from that that leads you to this, right? And this, this could have taken a huge amount of time. And the final product, you know, that's where that new developer comes in and he says, I could have done that in five minutes. Why did this guy take 20 hours to do it? And it's because of this bulk of research that he doesn't see. Exactly. And frequently we don't document, we, we delete the branch. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it disappears, that history, that knowledge. As developers, we, we write novels like Stephen King does all the time for nobody to read. Yeah. And, and, and so we discard them or we say, we're just not going to waste our time. And then when the person really needs to look it up, when they need to go into that novel and say, what, what logic did you, we had one once where it was a, a form that had a begin date on it. And that begin date, the contingency over what that meant <sighs> was so heated. Yeah. It just, it's just a date. Is it the date we created the record? Is it the date that the paperwork got filed? Whatever. And every six months there would be a change request to change that date but nobody documented all the arguments and the yeah. logic behind why that date had to exist so it just kept changing oh man yeah so well as we're wrapping up here uh are there, are there any bits of advice that you could give people who are actually looking to go hire other developers um get to know them really well uh sit down and actually talk to them uh i I know that the trend right now is to get people to put code samples out there and do free work for you. Uh, personally, I would say avoid that. If you're going to actually have them do a sample project, pay them for it, see how they work, and, um, and really get to know them, not their resume, get to know the developer before hiring. Yeah, because it seems like we're sort of at a point where, I mean, anybody can go online and learn PHP or learn Python or whatever, but if that person's mindset isn't in tune with what your company's trying to do, you're just going to deal with a lot of friction trying to get something shipped, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Doug McCon.
thank you so much, buddy. It was a pleasure. Thank you I so appreciate much. it. And uh, this has been, I believe, episode 16 of Coders. Uh, we are not going to be here next week. Actually, it's a, it's a holiday in the U.S., but we will be back the week after that, and I'll be talking to uh, another friend of mine who's a brilliant developer named Brett Terpstra, and he'll be talking about APIs, which, of course, have become incredibly important in today's world. And uh, so for this episode of Coders, I'm Victor Greta Jr. And thanks for joining us. Coders is a production of RCR TV News. To reach Victor Agreta Jr. or to suggest a show topic for Coders, you can reach him on Twitter at SuperPixels. For all the latest news on wireless code and the whole world of wireless, check out rcrwireless.com. <laughs>